Hello, I'm your host, Anna Danino, and welcome to episode 20 of the Crime Bistro podcast. This show gazes into the thrillingly twisted world of true crime, examining real cases, while we share in a passion for crime and coffee alike. For this episode, I'm enjoying a peach iced tea, so grab yourself a fresh brew and let's get into the cold cases of the Grand Canyon, as they are still being investigated by the cold case squad. Reports of skeletal remains being found throughout the Grand Canyon are relatively commonplace, especially over the last 100 years. This is understandable, however, considering the high number of cold cases that the Coconino County Sheriff's Office has in their database. The sheer amount of disappearances, unattended deaths, and homicides, as well as the high need to identify remains, has led the county to found a unit that is known as the Cold Case Squad. The Cold Case Squad works on identifying victims of accidents, suicides, and murders, sometimes creating names for those people in an attempt to create identities, including the famous Little Miss X and Valentine Sally. To this day, the Cold Case Squad is working to piece together the mysteries of the Grand Canyon, hoping to bring closure to even centuries-old cases if they can. This episode will cover just a few of these cases, however the list itself is overwhelming. Today, I'm going to tell the stories of the unidentified Little Miss X, the recently identified Valentine Sally, and the still-missing Justin Richardson, all investigations which are still ongoing, and all of which are currently under the jurisdiction of the Cold Case Squad. The first case that this episode is covering is the case of Little Miss X. This case begins on October 31st of 1958, and while Halloween is often known for its horrors and ghouls, on this particular one, the scariness was far from all in good fun. An unidentified young girl was found dead about 10 miles southeast of the Grand Canyon, and even to this day, no one knows who she really is or what really happened to her. The body was located on a remote hillside dirt road off of Skinner Ridge, and since all that remained of her was skeletal, no cause of death could be determined, and it is estimated that the body had been there anywhere from in between 9 to 18 months. She was between 5 foot tall to 5 foot 3 and approximately 105 pounds. From the autopsy, it was able to be determined that she was white with Hispanic ancestry, and it was thought that she had a brown skin tone. She also had reddish or dark brown wavy hair that had been dyed a lighter shade. The determination was made that she was anywhere from 11 to 17 years old, which is very odd since based on signs of puberty that are apparent in female bone structure, the skeleton of an 11-year-old is very different from that of a 17-year-old, so it should have been easier to narrow this window of time. She was thought to be of a middle-class background based on the fact that her teeth were well cared for and she had received seven fillings in four of her teeth. Disturbingly, she was found naked, but she did have clothing and other items lying next to her. This included a powder puff, a jar of prawns cold cream, a 10-carat gold chain, a white nylon comb, and a blue plastic nail file with the letter P imprinted and the letter R written on it by hand. There was a short-sleeved white wool cardigan, a size 34C white cotton maiden form bra, small white underwear, and Graf California wear pedal-pushed capris with a green, brown, and red plaid pattern. The odd part about this was that all of the clothes found were too big for her, and investigators could not determine if they were hers at all. The pants did provide a small lead, however. The Graf Company was founded in 1933, becoming popular in the 40s and 50s with women in California for their two-piece suits and slacks, 
This was clothing that was designed for modern women, resembling a bit Joan Crawford and Mildred Pierce. In other words, this was not clothing that an 11 to 17 year old would wear. The clothing did raise a lot of questions, and investigators wondered if they had been left to throw off the police and to create confusion, or even more sinister, if they were perhaps from a different crime scene and a different victim. They could have also been random items that the killer had somehow accumulated. There is really only one other possible lead. It is possible that Little Miss X had shovel-shaped incisors, which could have been why police believed she was of Hispanic descent. If this were true, she could have been compared to missing persons with the same trait. However, this hasn't ever been confirmed. This case was cold from the very first day. However, investigators did try to identify the girl who they called Little Miss X. When this was unsuccessful, she was laid to rest, only to be exhumed and re-examined in 1962. After this, however, follows yet another bizarre detail of the Little Miss X case, because when she was reburied for the second time, law enforcement forgot exactly where she had been placed, which means that her remains were essentially lost for years. According to the Doe Network, her body was finally rediscovered in the summer of 2018. Over the years, there have been several theories, all of which were ultimately dead ends. At one point, Little Miss X was thought to be Donis Redman, a California girl who disappeared on March 1st of 1958 at the age of 14 with her 18-year-old boyfriend, Mike Griffin. The abandoned 1950 Dodge Clipper that the two had been driving in was found in Williams, Arizona, which was about an hour and 20-minute drive from where Little Miss X was found. However, Donis had not been missing for 9 to 18 months, which means she hadn't been missing long enough for the time frame to make sense. Little Miss X was also suspected to be a girl named Connie Smith, a 10-year-old from Wyoming who ran away from Camp Sloan in Salisbury, Connecticut in the summer of 1952 after experiencing bullying from her fellow campers. She left the camp on July 16th, wandering down Indian Mountain Road, and a few people did witness her trying to hitchhike, however, she was never seen again beyond that day. Connie's dental records were tested against Little Miss X, and the results proved inconclusive, at which point Connie was ruled out. She was also too young and physically much smaller, which contributed to this theory hitting a dead end. Considering the context surrounding the discovery of Little Miss X's remains, as well as the fact that this occurred in the 1950s, when a severe lack of technology made identification so much more difficult, this case has so much mystery surrounding it that it is unlikely there will ever be a conclusive answer. While her killer is possibly dead themselves after all these years, with modern advancements in forensics, it may still be possible to give Little Miss X her real name back, which is the best anyone can hope for after it was taken from her so long ago. The next case is another story of a Jane Doe, however, the young girl known as Valentine Sally was identified in February of 2021 after 40 years of anonymity. One of the oldest unsolved, unidentified persons cases in Arizona, Valentine Sally was found dead on the side of a northern Arizona highway by an Arizona Department of Public Safety officer who was out looking for a blown-out tire on Valentine's Day of 1982. Her body was discovered about 11 miles from Williams, Arizona, and was face down under a cedar tree 
by the westbound lanes of I-40 near milepost 151.8. She appeared to have been dragged to that location, which was on a stretch of interstate known for being a long incline where truck drivers often pulled over to cool their brakes. The Coconino County Medical Examiner's Office determined that she had been dead for approximately two weeks. However, due to extensive animal damage and decomposition, it was difficult to determine the cause of her death. With no broken hyoid bone, which would suggest strangulation, the current theory is that she died by suffocation. Evidence showed that she had been pulled at some point by her belt loops since they had been ripped. When she was found, she was wearing Seasons brand jeans, and near her body was a white sweater with red stripes, a white handkerchief, and a white bra. A few witnesses placed her with one or two men at the Monte Carlo truck stop in Ash Fork, Arizona, during the early morning hours of February 4, 1982. According to witnesses, one of these men was white, around 60 to 65 years old, between 5'8 and 5'10, and of medium weight. He was wearing a two-toned brown checkered leather vest and a felt cowboy hat with a peacock feather. One such witness was a woman named Patty Wilkins, who had been working a graveyard shift at the truck stop. According to her, the pair had seemed relaxed, and she had said, quote, The camaraderie between the two of them was like she knew him, and she was comfortable with him, end quote. Patty even asked the girl if she was okay and if she wanted to stay instead of leaving with him, but the girl said that she would go with the man that she was with. When Patty was shown pictures of the clothing that was found with Valentine Sally, she was stunned to recognize them immediately as being the ones worn by the young girl she had seen almost two weeks earlier. An aspirin that Patty had given to her that morning was also still in her system when she died. In 1984, Valentine Sally was misidentified as a 14-year-old named Melody Cutlip, who had run away from home in 1980. This was based on a match that was made by a forensic odontologist who claimed Valentine Sally's bite marks matched images of Melody's teeth. Despite this unorthodox and completely unreliable method, she was buried under a headstone with Melody's name. It was discovered in 1986 that a huge mistake had been made when Melody was reunited with her family, very much alive. Using funding from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, the Coco Nino County Sheriff's Office sent DNA samples to a private testing lab to do a familial search looking for relatives of Valentine Sally's. This led them to family members in the St. Louis area of Missouri, a town called Bellefontaine Neighbors, where it was found that those family members did in fact have a sibling who had run away from home around Christmas in 1981. DNA samples were retrieved from the relatives, and it was announced that they were a match, positively identifying Valentine Sally as 17-year-old Carolyn Eaton. So far, there have been no suspects identified in her death, However, the case does remain classified as a homicide. According to Sheriff Driscoll, quote, We have evidence and leads that we are currently following that we're not able to share at this point. We have looked at a lot of possible suspects in this even before she was identified, and there are a number of serial killers out there, end quote. While there are no updates regarding who may have carried out the horrific crime, it is certainly a win for investigators that genetic genealogy has allowed the identification of Carolyn Eaton after so many decades. 
In cases of unidentified persons, there is an added layer of sadness as the victims have had nearly everything taken from them, including their names. While her killer has not been identified, Carolyn has reclaimed her identity, and her family has received the slightest amount of closure, finally at least knowing what happened to their sister after all of these years. The final case I'm going to cover in this episode is the case of Justin Lee Richardson, a 15-year-old boy who was last seen in Kaibab National Forest near the town of Tusayan on June 29, 2001. Justin and three of his friends, who were between the ages of 18 and 21, had gone into the forest that morning, and according to authorities, were planning on using drugs together. According to the subsequent investigation, this wasn't uncommon behavior for Justin, and authorities believe that he had been abusing drugs and alcohol for about a year prior to his disappearance. The area that they went to was a few miles south of Grand Canyon National Park and five miles west of Moki Lodge, which has since been torn down. While the four of them were in the forest, Justin and one of the other men got separated from the other two, and they returned to Tucson to get help in finding the two that they were separated from. Justin and another friend returned to Kaibab National Forest in a spot about five miles from Tucson, and this companion fell asleep at around 9 o'clock a.m. after coming down off methamphetamines. When he woke up again at 5 o'clock p.m., Justin was gone. This man did hitchhike a ride back to Tucson, however, did not report Justin missing. In the meantime, the two missing men had been found by Grand Canyon Railway employees south of Tucson, Arizona, but Justin did not know this. He was reported missing by his father on July 1st of 2001. Justin was living with his father at the time while his mother was living in Flagstaff. Search parties were deployed to survey 64 miles of the forest using horseback and helicopter. However, no body or evidence of human remains were ever detected or recovered. Justin had been to the area four times before he disappeared, and he was pretty familiar with it, having never gotten lost before. However, it is always possible that he lost track of his surroundings, especially if he was under the influence. He had also run away from home once before, so it is possible that he tried to do so again, and was perhaps picked up as a hitchhiker at some point. Justin did have a girlfriend in Chicago, who he had been wanting to see. However, investigators do believe that foul play is the most possible option in Justin's case, and that he may have been killed in the forest shortly after he disappeared. Currently, foul play is considered to be the most likely by investigators, as Captain Terry Lawson, who worked the case at the time, pointed out that it would have been hard for Justin to have been lost for very long if he had gotten turned around. He had knowledge of the terrain, and helicopters were constantly flying over the area which he could have followed back to town. There was also numerous landmarks that Justin would have been able to recognize as he was a resident, including dirt roads, fences, power lines, and railroad tracks. The men that he was with on that day were interviewed by police. However, at that time, foul play was ruled out, and they were found to not be involved. Justin's case was turned over to the cold case squad in 2014, and they were able to uncover evidence that he did return to Moki Lodge after he was last seen. However, they declined to release that evidence to the public. He is no longer considered a runaway given the amount of time that has passed without a sighting or contact with family or law enforcement 
and this case is still considered very much open. The cold case squad believes that there is an unidentified person in the area that has important information about Justin, and anyone with information is encouraged to contact the unit at 928-774-4593. These cases are only a few of many that the cold case squad has been tasked with attempting to solve, however they do provide excellent examples of why it is important to continue looking at unsolved cases. Using new technologies, and even something as simple as a fresh set of eyes on a case, there can be incredible strides made, even after it has been cold for years. Identifying Valentine Sally as Carolyn Eaton has not brought her killer to justice, however it has returned her identity to the young girl after 40 years, which in itself is huge progress. Additionally, in the case of Justin Richardson, The unit finding new evidence after taking over the investigation in 2014 is another example of how a case is never truly as cold as we think it is. It is investigations such as these that are so important to shed light on and to encourage they continue to be looked into as there is always evidence left to find and always someone who knows what really happened. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Crime Bistro Podcast. And if you are interested in learning more about any of these cases, all of the sources are listed in the show notes at crimebistro.com. Additionally, the Facebook page of the Coco Nino Sheriff Cold Cases will be listed, where a full list of all the cases being investigated by the Cold Case Squad can be found. If you have a theory or a comment of your own to share, feel free to head over and visit the podcast on YouTube or on Instagram at crimebistropodcast to leave a comment and see some behind-the-scenes updates on the episodes to come. With that, this story is coming to a close, so thanks again, and as always, until next time.